You're going to love this. Just love it. Radio in Los Angeles. This is the Bradcast. I'm Bradcast producer Desi Doyen. We're off today, but we've put together two important recent interviews for you. A best of the Bradcast. On today's show, Professor Stanley Brand, distinguished fellow in law and government at Penn State University and an expert on independent counsel and special counsel law, explains the potential paths ahead after special counsel Robert Mueller's report is finally delivered to new U.S. Attorney General William Barr. And after that, Brad's interview with environmental journalist Emily Atkin of The New Republic on the politics of the new landmark Green New Deal resolution. So please sit back and enjoy this best of the broadcast. According to several different reports in the media, Department of Justice officials are now preparing for special counsel Robert Mueller to issue a report on his investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election and obstruction of justice by Team Trump to prevent that probe. An advisor to President Trump reportedly told The Post that those in Trump's inner circle have expressed concerns that the report could include politically damaging information, but no evidence of criminal conduct, at least according to The Hill. Mueller is required under the special counsel statute to submit a report to the attorney general at the conclusion of his investigation, though that report is not required to be made public. Mueller, according to the law, is required to explain his reasoning behind prosecuting or not prosecuting those named in his findings. And as I understand the statute, but I'll get some more help on this in a moment, is required to detail any actions not taken that he might have otherwise taken uh, due to instructions or vetoes from the attorney general overseeing the probe. Whether those reports uh, as to the reports uh, timing, the, the Mueller reports timing are accurate, we don't know. There have been similar reports over the past year or two that did not come to fruition. Still, many now seem to believe that Mueller's report to Bill Barr, in any event, is imminent. But whether the public will ever see such a report, that remains a different matter, as is the matter of whether even members of Congress will be allowed to see it. While the special counsel has yet to openly accuse anyone in Trump's orbit of so-called collusion or conspiracy or direct coordination with the Russians to affect the 2016 election results, Mueller has laid out 10 criminal cases. He has seen uh, four people sentenced to prison, secured one conviction at, at trial, extracted seven guilty pleas and charged 37 people and entities with crimes in what Donald Trump continues to call a giant hoax or a witch hunt 
William Barr said during his recent confirmation hearing for attorney general, which came after Barr was nominated by Trump following Barr's submission of a lengthy memo to the Justice Department detailing why he thought the Mueller probe was out of bounds or unlawful or unconstitutional. Barr said at his testimony that he would make as much of the report public as he can based on the law, claiming that he wanted to be as, quote, transparent as possible. But Stanley M. Brand, who served for eight years as general counsel for the U.S. House of Representatives, uh, the chief legal officer responsible for representing the House, its members, its officers and employees in connection with legal procedures and challenges to the conduct of their official activities, He is dubious that the Mueller report will ever see the light of day, at least the light of day among the public. Brand now teaches a course on the independent counsel that is the predecessor of the special counsel at Penn State University Law School. Writing at The Conversation this week, Professor Brand notes, almost from the day of Robert Mueller's appointment as special counsel, the media and public have expected that his investigation will end with a report to either the Congress or the public or both. I believe, he writes, that the public's expectation that they will see a report from the Mueller investigation is unrealistic. That expectation appears to be based on a misunderstanding of the legal principles involved in making any such report available to anyone outside of the Department of Justice, Brand writes. Well, talk about a buzzkill, at least for opponents of Donald Trump at any rate. That buzzkill, Stan Brand, distinguished fellow in law and government at Pennsylvania State University and senior counsel at Aiken Gump's litigation practice in Washington, D.C., joins us now to explain all of this. Professor Brand, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Greatly appreciate you joining us, buzzkill or otherwise. Hello. Good to have you here. I have a lot of things I want to ask you about on this uh uh, special counsel statute. But uh, first, if you don't mind, I'd like to get your thoughts on on what we are even seeing here, uh, Professor. Does it pass your smell test with uh, several matters clearly going on in court? Trump's longtime friend, Roger Stone, uh, his home being raided by the FBI days ago. Uh, National Security Advisor Michael Flynn and, and Trump Uh, campaign aide Rick Gates cooperating still uh, with prosecutors that amidst all of this, the Mueller probe is suddenly wrapping up that they're done, ready to issue a a report just days after Trump's new attorney general, Bill Barr, took office? Well, the investigation has been going on for over 18 months, Um, as is the case with most of these special counsel or independent counsel cases. they, They always take longer than people anticipate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have no notion why it's wrapping up, if it is, at this particular point. Um, but I have confidence that if it is wrapping up, it's because Mueller has decided he's finished. So you don't feel that this would be uh, some form of undue influence from uh, from William Barr, who I, I don't know if you actually know him. I guess he was the AG at the same time you were working in the, uh, yeah. in the House, if well, I'm correct? Well, I know both of them. Uh-huh. Um, Mueller more directly than Barr, and mm-hmm. I can tell you, um, Mueller, a man who was uh, director of the FBI for 12 years, actually asked to be uh, held over 
from a Republican to a Democratic president, mm-hmm. who was former head of the criminal division, who was uh, a U.S. attorney. Um, no, nobody, nobody's going to push Bob Mueller around. So if there is a conclusion to this, it's because Mueller has determined in his judgment that it's, uh, it's time and he has no further actions to bring. So you're, you're confident that if he was being pressured in some fashion by Bill Barr that we would know about that, that he would uh, speak out in some fashion? No, um, but the regulation provides a procedure and a process inside the Department of Justice, mm-hmm. um, which which doesn't which gives the um, attor- the Attorney General the right to try to rein Mueller in, but requires the Attorney General to give an explanation for that. So I, I think in the push and pull within the Department of Justice, that's very unlikely to have happened. Well, that is uh, somewhat comforting to know. Uh, All right, so generally speaking then, how is the special counsel statute here uh, written in the wake of the demise of the independent counsel statute following, uh, as I understand it, Ken Starr's infamous years-long probe of Bill Clinton? How is that different from the uh, independent counsel uh, that was used as the basis for the impeachment of Clinton? Well, the the statute under which uh, Starr and others operated lapsed in the in the late nineties mm-hmm. during the Clinton administration, and the regulation was written by the Clinton administration to replace the statute because of what was viewed as the excesses of the independent counsel statute. You know, overlong investigations that went on for eight years, investigations that cost $52 million, investigations where uh, Monica Lewinsky's mother was subpoenaed to the grand jury. Mm -hmm. The uh, consensus in the Clinton administration and on Capitol Hill was to rebalance the equation and put a little bit more uh, control and discretion back in the Department of Justice where uh, it could be, uh, where, where people believed it belonged. And so the regulation uh, returned some of that control. And as to the Mueller report, what the regulation says, written by a Democrat, Neil Katchel, mm-hmm. is that the report is, going, is to be confidential. Uh, that is, it is written by the special counsel to the attorney general. And the attorney general then has a decision to make as to whether or what portions, if any of that, can be disclosed outside the department. And and this is where I want to uh, try to unpack this a bit because I'm having some I'm having some trouble understanding how uh, this report, whether it becomes public or not, would actually proceed, Professor uh, Stephen Collinson. Uh, over at CNN, uh, says, uh, given his by-the-book history, it's likely that Robert Mueller would follow the prevailing Justice Department opinion that a sitting president cannot be charged, cannot be indicted in a criminal case, even if he has evidence that uh, Trump has transgressed in some way. First, uh, do you share uh, Collinson's uh, assessment of, of, of how Mueller would behave if, in fact, he came across criminal acts by the president? Yeah. Well, there's divided opinions on whether you can indict a sitting president. Um, Leon Jaworski, who was the independent counsel in the Nixon case, decided that he had sufficient evidence to indict, but determined it was not something he should do, mm-hmm. given the ongoing uh, investigation into impeachment by the House of Representatives. So he, he stood back. Um, 
Ken Starr, for his part, determined that he could indict a president, a sitting president, but determined as a matter of discretion not to do that because the statute provided a specific mechanism for referring that type of evidence to the House for impeachment, which he did and which resulted in an impeachment proceeding of President Clinton. Mueller, being uh, somebody who I think uh, correctly hues to the prevailing Department of Justice guidelines, would probably determine that he wouldn't bring a case against the sitting president. And there's some textual support for that in the Constitution, because the way it's laid out, it appears to uh, infer that while a president could be indicted after he was impeached, Mm -hmm. uh, that impeachment is the way in which you remove a president, not through the criminal justice system. Okay, so no indictment, but potentially impeachment. And yet, uh, Professor Brand, you write at the conversation that the previous law, uh, I guess the independent counsel law, uh, creating uh, special counsels, which has now lapped, directed the special counsel to report to the House of Representatives, quote, substantial and credible information of impeachable conduct. But the current statute does not. Does does the statute require that any substantial and credible information of impeachable conduct be at least reported to the AG? No. So no. And and this this the herein lies my confusion. If if uh, you know basically if uh, the the only thing they have to tell the AG is whether he prosecuted or didn't prosecute, then and we know that he's not going to prosecute because he'll probably follow the uh, the DOJ notion that you you can't prosecute a sitting president. So if you can't have a prosecution and he doesn't have to give substantial and credible information of impeachable offense. Um, what well, does he actually it, say to the AG? Yeah, you, have, you have to remember, we live in a system of separation of powers. Right. And so the Mueller process is a criminal process. Mm-hmm. That has nothing to do with and doesn't limit the Congress from exercising its own independent power to conduct impeachment uh, proceedings. It doesn't need Bob Mueller to do that. In fact, uh, in previous instances... Uh, prior to the uh, you know the the statute, um, it it didn't it didn't work that way. The 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 House Judiciary Committee in mm-hmm. the Nixon era, on its own motion, began impeachment proceedings. So they're just two separate processes. One is criminal, and one is legislative, and they're different. Well. That I understand. So it's up to Congress, of course, to bring impeachment proceedings forward. Um, But the special counsel doesn't recommend impeachment and can't recommend, uh, as I understand it, can't recommend an indictment. So what what how can the special counsel bring any kind of accountability here for a president who has violated the law? Well, it wouldn't be up to him to bring the accountability under that theory, it would be up to the Congress. And, you know, we've heard the debate within the Congress about impeachment, and mm-hmm. that, that will be up to them. The framers, in their wisdom, left that to the Congress as the elected branch. In fact, as Neil Katchel said, who, uh, who was the man who wrote the regulation, mm-hmm. and who was uh, in the Department of Justice in the Clinton era, said he believes that if you're going to remove a president, that should be a national decision, uh, which has been committed to the legislative branch, and not the decision of an individual grand jury in one single 
judicial district of the United States. So that's one view of the allocation of function uh, in this case. Do you understand what I'm getting at, though, about because uh, I'm wondering how you can. Yes, there is uh, impeachment then for uh, to bring accountability for a president. But for any criminal actions, what good essentially is the special counsel probe if he also can't bring criminal indictments? Is it only for, uh, you know, bringing accountability for folks uh, who aren't the president, it, you know, people on the campaign team and in the administration and so forth. But there's nothing when it comes to criminal accountability for a president well, of the I, United States. Yeah, as, as I say, there may be no criminal accountability for the president while he sits as president. Mm-hmm. Uh, after he leaves or or is defeated or is impeached, there may be cr- cr- criminal accountability. And that appears... To many of the constitutional scholars that I've read, to be what the design of the Constitution is. Uh, now you'll get debate on that and dispute on that, but um, that's at least one prevailing opinion. You explain uh, in your article, uh, in arguing that the public is unlikely to see uh, Mueller's report over at uh, theconversation.com, that one reason is because the grand jury proceedings must remain secret by federal law. But how did? Uh, previous special counsels uh, under the now lapsed independent counsel statute, for example, the infamous Ken Starr report, how did they get around that issue, or did they? They didn't. They transferred to Congress their own materials and their own recommendations based on public evidence that they had gathered. Um, and I don't believe that they uh, they confronted the grand jury rule that uh, Barr would have to confront if the Mueller report includes large portions of grand jury material. Because Ken Starr, you know, published a book, essentially, of, of, of his report. Um, right. House, uh, House Democrats have uh, subpoena power, of course, uh, that they could use to try to force the release, I guess, of Mueller's report. At least Stephen Collinson argues that over at CNN, uh, or to get evidence and testimony uncovered by the special counsel uh, that was not released to Congress, could Congress use that subpoena power to either force the release of Mueller's report in some fashion, as you understand it, uh, or even subpoena Robert Mueller himself to come in and at least discuss his findings in uh, in open session in Congress? Would that be allowable under the statute? Well, two, two answers. First, as to the Congress's ability to subpoena, yes, they could issue a subpoena. The question is, could they enforce it? There's a long history uh, of the Department of Justice taking the position uh, that they oppose efforts by Congress to get either grand, ma- grand jury material under Rule 60 or mm-hmm. prosecutorial deliberations. And so that would be met by, I think, a strong Department of Justice uh, position in court, and that would take uh, some time to litigate. As to Bob Mueller being called to a public session to reveal things that are covered by 6E, I can't predict what Bob Mueller would do, but my guess is he would resist any effort to force him to violate what he would see as a stricture under Rule 6E that limits his ability to do that. Um, since he is, I think, a by-the-book, um, a by-the-book uh, lawyer. So he would be limited when it comes to even talking publicly about this, even uh, in U.S. House testimony, where he's called to, well, to he, answer he's, questions. He's spoken. He's spoken openly 
and fully in his charging papers as to everyone who he will have believed committed a crime. They have to understand something about the grand jury and the criminal justice system. There's a protection built in for people who are investigated but not charged, and that is not to have the allegations uh, deemed not sufficient to bring a charge aired in public in a way that that damages the reputation of people who the government ultimately decided not to prosecute. Um, and so the notion that you just parade all of this stuff in public mm-hmm. uh, because there's interest in it uh, really runs counter to everything in the criminal justice system. The people who are, are investigated but not charged mm-hmm. and the deliberations of the prosecutors into those matters are to remain secret for the protection of the innocent. That makes sense to me, except for the case of the president, where who, who seems to have some, you know, this special dispensation that a sitting president can't be charged. If Mueller had wanted to charge the president in some fashion, would you expect that that would be something that at least would be noted uh, in his report to the uh, to the attorney general? We didn't prosecute Donald Trump, but we would like to. No, I can't imagine Mueller saying that. Um, by the way, I'd remind everyone that the, the so-called roadmap that Leon Jaworski wrote with respect to his conclusions about President Nixon remained sealed until last year. Yeah, I, I know. So that, I guess, brings me to my last question. Will we see the Mueller report, or will it be decades uh, before we actually see that information? You may see portions of it, or you may see selected excerpts or representations of what it contains um, if Bill Barr, and I take him at his word, wants to be as transparent as he can within the rules and regulations. So you may see some of it. You may not see all the internal documents and deliberations uh, that occurred. That's troubling. Uh, uh, Professor Stan Brand, uh, yeah, still a a little bit of a buzzkill there. Uh, Distinguished fellow in law and government at Penn State University, formerly general counsel to the U.S. House of Representatives. We will link over to your article at theconversation.com, headlined, Indict or Shut Up, the Public May Never See a Report from Mueller's investigation. Professor Brand, greatly appreciate you joining us today on the broadcast. Enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Oh, boy. I, I got to tell you, uh, Des, I, I don't know. Is it just me? It seems incredibly frustrating. It seems <laughs> like an, a remarkable catch-22 where, uh, you know, catch me if you can, Donald yeah. Trump uh, cannot be caught. Cannot be caught. So Because, you know, as he said, there's an active debate on whether or not you can indict a sitting president. But how can you indict a sitting president if you don't get access to the information that he did something criminal because that's not going to be released. How can Congress set in motion the impeachment that would then allow a sitting president, I guess, to be impeached and then indicted? How can you do that if Congress can't get the information to show that? And he even says that uh, even if Mueller had wanted to bring an indictment, found you know clear crimes committed by the president of the United States, but didn't prosecute because under the premise that you can't indict a sitting president, that 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 would not even make it into the report 
given to the attorney general? Did I understand him correctly That's on that? That's what I understood him to say as well. And then we have an additional problem of maybe Stan, uh, Stanley Brand trusts William Barr and takes him at his word that he will release the information. But I don't know that there's a whole lot of trust in the American public right now that William Brand won't... that. That William Barr, I should say, won't put political considerations or a political thumb on those scales on what's going to get released, which again would influence whether Congress impeaches and whether or not the public realizes whether or not the the president committed a crime. Particularly since uh, Barr had issued that memo saying, hey, he thought that obstruction of justice and all of that stuff should not even be looked at by the special counsel. All of this sort of underscoring what I have been Trying to say for many months that, uh, you know, Congress is saying, well, we'll wait for the report from uh, from Robert Mueller before even considering impeachment. Are you out of your mind? (laughs) I mean, we have a clearly a wildly a pathologically scofflaw president sitting in the Oval Office. And you're telling me that we can't bring accountability as Congress that we have to wait for the special counsel who, you know, is not going to indict and not even necessarily going to say whether he thinks this president should be indicted. It is the job of the Congress. Read the Constitution to bring uh, uh, charges, I guess, of high crimes and misdemeanors uh, in a uh, in an impeachment proceeding against the president of the United States. That is up to the Congress. Democrats are now in control of the U.S. House. I don't give a damn whether they believe they could get a uh, a vote to remove him in the U.S. Senate. If Democrats would like to see accountability for this president uh, above and beyond waiting for two years and try to unseat him at the uh, at the ballot box, uh, if they don't take action here uh, with impeachment, what they are saying is they will never, ever take action uh, with impeachment against any president, if not this president. I can't imagine, uh, you know, ever doing what they ought to be doing. And, well, we'll see if they start waking up to that. Yep, we will see indeed. Again, that was Brad's conversation with Professor Stan Brand of Penn State University. Coming up next on the Best of the Bradcast, Emily Atkin of the New Republic dives into the landmark Green New Deal resolution that has generated a lot of internal debate among congressional Democrats. I'm Bradcast producer Desi Doyen. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to the best of the broadcast. Yes, welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. You may have seen a version of a video that went viral over the past week or so showing 85-year-old Democratic Senator Diane Feinstein of California meeting with a couple of dozen kids from the Sunrise Movement in her office out here in San Francisco. The uh, Sunrise Movement has been one of the loudest and longest, uh, really, citizen groups, advocate voices calling for a Green New Deal along the lines 
of the one recently introduced by freshman Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York and veteran Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts. Their resolution is a blueprint for a 10-year wartime-like mobilization to transition the U.S. economy and power grid to 100% carbon neutral by 2030, with a massive investment in infrastructure and jobs to support it, along with a focus on helping vulnerable communities and workers such as coal miners survive and indeed thrive in that transition while cleaning up decades of legacy pollution. Now, the meeting with the Sunrise Movement children in Feinstein's office did not go particularly well for Feinstein who said that she has her own version of a Green New Deal that the uh, kids there wanted her to uh, agree to uh, to vote for. Um, but she said she's got her own version of a Green New Deal, and I'm sorry to say she seemed to talk down to the children. Now, to be fair, the video that went viral that most of you may have seen, if you did see this uh, over the past week, uh, that video was somewhat unfairly edited, I think, by the Sunrise Movement folks. I don't believe that they did it on purpose, but the 10-minute uh, or so meeting looked much worse in that two-minute clip than it was uh, in actuality, I think, uh, at least upon my own review of the full video. In the full video, Feinstein looked better, but frankly... Still not great. Uh, here's the first unedited uh, few minutes of that encounter between Senator Dianne Feinstein and the, frankly, very smart kids of many different ages from the Sunrise Movement. Hi. Hi. Hello. Oh, tell me where you're from. Uh, well, we're from all, all over. over. All we're from okay. all, all over. All right, and tell me what you're doing here. Uh, we are trying to ask you to vote yes on the Green New Deal. Okay, I'll tell you what. We have our own Green New Deal piece of legislation. Why don't you call back, see if they can fax one out, make a copy for each person. Well, we're trying, okay. to, we're trying to promote the Green New Deal. The, well, there are reasons why I can't, because there's no way to pay for it. Yes, there is. Yes, we there have is. tons of money, money going to the military. Half of our, a lot of ours is going to the military. Well, I, I understand that. The United States government does a lot of things with the money. And they're important things. And you just can't go in and say, okay, we're going to take hundreds of millions from here and hundreds of millions from there. It doesn't, it just doesn't work that way. But of course well, our But you can have, I don't agree with what that resolution says. That's part of it. And we have done our, can you get a copy of the resolution? Yeah, it's Senator, coming. Yeah. we need it's a coming. plan that, And that. let me just finish. I will give you a copy of what we do support. And you can take a look at it. And if you've got a problem with it, you can let me know. But I think it has a much better chance of passing than what this is, because there is no way to pay for what it gets done, so nothing will happen. So you you be the judge. You take a look at it. We're going to get you But we have come coffee. to a point where our earth is dying, literally, and it is going to be a pricey and ambitious plan that is needed to deal with the magnitude of that issue. And so we're here asking you to vote yes on the resolution for the Green New Deal because that is the only thing that, that is worth will not pass the Senate. 
and you can take that back to whoever sent you here Why do you and tell them. Because it doesn't have a single Republican vote. And the Republicans control the United States Senate. So we are a minority on the Democratic side. So the key to good legislation is to tailor something that you write so that it can pass and you can get a step ahead. I've been doing this, I've been in the Senate for over a quarter of a century and I know what can pass and I know what can't pass. And the key is to get something passed that puts us on the right foot and we're able to deal with the problem that's happening instead of something that won't get passed. But why does that stop you from voting yes? Because yeah. even if they vote, you can still well, vote can yes still and it won't try. pass and we can draft a new plan. Well, I may do that. Sponsors. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the first few minutes of uh, Diane Feinstein's uh, meeting with a bunch of kids from the Sunrise Movement about a week or so ago. Um, and, and it gives you just some idea of what's going on on the Democratic side of the climate change battle, while on the Republican denialist side... Uh, on Sunday, the Washington Post reported that the Trump administration is assembling a panel of fringe industry funded scientists who represent the Trump administration's most forceful effort to date to challenge the scientific consensus that greenhouse gas emissions are helping drive global warming and that the world could face dire consequences unless countries curb their carbon output over the next few decades. But as environmental reporter Emily Atkin at the New Republic observes this past week following the viral release of that Feinstein encounter with terrified children, uh, as Trump denies climate change, Democrats delay. Feinstein, writes Atkin, is not a climate villain on par with Donald Trump. She has a 90 percent lifetime rating from the League of Conservation Voters, while Trump is withdrawing the U.S. from the Paris Agreement and his EPA is methodically attempting to undo everything it accomplished under President Barack Obama. But, Emily writes, the uh, California senator, and here's where we get to the controversial part from, uh, from Emily, uh, the California senator is the bigger threat to the left's goal of slowing climate change before it's too late. That in a headline uh, in, a, in an article headlined Diane Feinstein is a bigger climate threat than Trump over at the New Republic. Well, that charge may have raised a few eyebrows and angered a few Dems in the social media world over this uh, past week. Here to explain herself is Emily Atkin, the environmental reporter from The New Republic. Emily, welcome back to the broadcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, you're in such trouble. Uh, bef oh, <laughs> before we before we get to uh, the Feinstein matter, however, and 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 hopefully uh, Democratic House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and her own comments about the Green New Deal, which you argue in a separate article may have been misinterpreted somewhat by some uh, Democratic Washington State Governor Jay Inslee jumped into the 2020 nomination race on Friday uh, with the with his intention of seeking the nomination based on a focus on taking on climate change. I wanted to get your quick thoughts on that. And uh, and yes, I guess none of the other candidates currently running have have yet to make climate their top priority. So maybe that is an in here for uh, for the uh, for, for Jay Inslee, even as he's not particularly well known across the country yet. 
I mean, as a human being and a character, I don't really see Jay Inslee as a very exciting nominee for the Democratic Party. And I think that for any climate policy to get through and mm-hmm. for Democrats to really win, they need an exciting nominee. Um, and Bernie Sanders does have a full climate plan uh, just from, you know, from when he was running last year. So mm-hmm. he's a bit ahead on that. But, yeah, nobody else is running on climate change. Um, I don't see how he's going to be really a- an exciting, mobilizing figure. He's he's an old white dude, and he's not even as weird or quirky as Bernie Sanders, right? So, uh, so also I, I an old like white dude, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think what I do think is that it is great to have somebody running on climate change mm-hmm. who is going to push the rest of the field to be knowledgeable about this. Because really, in every other presidential cycle, Democratic nominees or or candidates to be the nominee have never really been pushed Mm -hmm. on specific questions about climate change. They don't even get climate change questions during debates. So to really have somebody who's knowledgeable about what we need to do to really make a dent in this huge problem that we literally don't have that much time to solve... Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's going to really help move the conversation forward and help drive the urgency. So I'm I'm excited to I'm excited about what he's doing. I, I think that him as figures maybe. I mean, who knows? Who knows? Maybe he's maybe he's going to be great. Well, uh, but no, I I agree. I think it's good to have someone pushing this issue because you also have a lot of uh, a lot of these uh, nomin uh, candidates, I should say, who have already signed on board for the Green New Deal. But to have someone who's raison d'etre, if you will, uh, is actually trying to push climate change, no matter what Inslee's record may have been. And I've heard from folks saying his record in Washington state is not that fantastic. But I I agree that I think uh, having him in here, if only to push everyone else, is a good idea. Now, he mentioned, Emily, in his... uh, in an interview with the AP that he believes, uh, quote, climate change is a unifying issue. He described uh, described it as a moral necessity and an economic opportunity, which clearly it is, at least for everyone but the fossil fuel industrialists anyway. But um, as I noted in, in our uh, previous segment, the... Um, the elements of the recently released Green New Deal polls very, very well, uh, like 80 percent among Americans of all parties. They do. It is a unifying issue, it seems, among the public. But among elected Democrats on Capitol Hill, there is a divide, as we see in that video with Diane Feinstein. Even if most of the currently declared presidential candidates have said that they support the Green New Deal, there does seem to be a split at least through part of the party. So how is your article, which argues that uh, Dianne Feinstein is a bigger climate threat than Trump, how do you explain <laughs> that? How is she a bigger threat to the climate than Donald Trump? Yeah, what I mean <laughs> what I mean is that she is a bigger threat to our one opportunity that we have mm-hmm. to to make a dent in climate change and make a significant dent. I think that People don't grasp that when the IPCC, the international body of scientists at mm-hmm. the UN, says that we have 12 years to get this stuff accomplished, um, that's, that's not a very long time. Mm-hmm. And so, and we have two parties in charge right now. This is the reality of our system. Uh, one of them is not going to do anything, and we can never depend on them to do anything to try and solve this problem. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's fully what I believe, and I think any realist believes that. Um, our only hope to get this done 
is through the Democrats. Um, and Dianne Feinstein has a preoccupation at this moment with what's passable with Republicans in charge, and she's focusing on this in a moment when they're not going to pass anything either way because it because Republicans are in charge. Right now is the time to mobilize on the idea of the most aggressive, most exciting climate plan possible and use that to take control of the House and the Senate and the presidency in 2020 and then get some, and then you talk about what is passable because nothing is going to be passable right now. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and also the, the Democrats are not going to take power in 2020 uh, unless they run on really bold, exciting messages. I think that we've seen that pragmatism, uh, it, it's just a, a bad strategy for winning elections, just running on saying, well, we're not going to be as bad as Donald Trump. I think we saw in the midterms that that doesn't work. Um, I think that young people understand that there was a few years left to implement bold solutions necessary. And right now you have some of the most powerful Democrats speaking actively against bold solutions, not even willing to vote for a resolution that doesn't even, I mean, sorry, it doesn't even mean anything. You know, if Dianne Feinstein supported this resolution, it doesn't mean that she has, she's voting for the legislation. Um, really, she's just kind of crapping on the only the only plan that's been put forward that has the emissions reduction goals and the realistic, like, the plan that could meet them, necessary that scientists say could actually do something. The plan that she put forward is, it it wouldn't do anything. Yeah, did you, did you, uh, she she kept referring to that several times in, in that video to her own, Green New Deal plan, though, frankly, I couldn't tell from that video if she uh, if she even knew what was in it. She said, well, we got a, d- a different plan. It's it's way better. Uh, so you uh, her, her plan is uh, at least the draft that I saw is about four pages long. Um, yeah. I presume you had time to look at it. How does her plan differ? Her d- Green New Deal differ from uh, AOC's uh, Green New Deal, as you see it, as I see it, as I read it. Um the climate change resolution put forward by Diane Feinstein is mostly a reinstatement of the status quo during the Obama administration. So putting back all of the regulations uh, for, the, for the climate that Trump is attempting and has repealed, mm-hmm. um, getting back into the Paris Climate Agreement, um, putting forth you know, another, uh, another big money mobilization and new technologies and Mm -hmm. things like that. It doesn't call for any of the big social uh, reforms that Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal resolution calls for. The idea of the Green New Deal, social policies like universal health care, free education, et cetera, et cetera, is that um, you have to take some of these market-based mechanisms out of society so that we're not overproducing anymore. You know, mm. like we're only producing as much as we need because it's in government control. Mm. Um, and then it also doesn't include the big economic stimulus package that the Green New Deal is. You know, the Green New Deal is supposed to provide a federal jobs guarantee and, you know, government-led funding mm. of new renewable energy jobs and technologies and then, you know, employing people in it. It's, it's the New Deal, but green. I mean, it just it doesn't have that big transformation, the big societal transformation within it. Um, it's sort of just a larger 
like status quo plus 10%. But Feinstein's argument was that uh, there's no way to pay for it in uh, the uh, Ocasio-Cortez plan, whereas she, A, knows how to pay for it, and B, can get Republicans on board. I guess the mechanism for payment in, in her uh, plan is basically a carbon tax? Is that how you read it? <laughs> That's all I saw in I there. don't know how she proposes we pay for climate, uh, the amount of climate change that's going to happen under her plan is what we can't pay for. Mm-hmm. I think people don't understand when they talk about cost in terms of a plan, um, is that co- doing something costs less than not doing something. Um, we have the ability to borrow money for from the future, and so uh, I don't see how we can't pay for, for anything, mm-hmm. but that's well, and, and, and the other uh, argument that she was offering there is that the uh, AOC plan would, uh, that it has no Republican support and that that plan can't possibly get Republican support, uh, which may or may not be true, as I said, since it's, uh, you know, wildly popular across all demographics, uh, getting more than 80 percent approval. But we spoke with David Roberts a couple weeks ago on on uh, on the show on the day that the resolution was first released. He argues, as you do, Emily, that uh, Republican officials at this point are not going to come on board with anything that Democrats produce that actually deals with the climate crisis. So. Why not just go for it? And uh, as AOC and, and Markey do here. Um, but if if that's the case, if Republicans won't come on board and the idea is to just go for it as aggressively as possible, they're still for the time being anyway. Republicans are needed in the Senate to pass anything. And then we've got a, an insane climate denier uh, clown in the White House. So really, what is the path forward here, Emily? I mean, I think I laid it out sort of a a bit earlier. The path forward is to support something exciting. Demonstrate that you know, as a Democrat, what it means when you say climate change is the biggest crisis of our time, which is what Dianne Feinstein says, but, but doesn't demonstrate it with the type of plan that she put forward. Yes, potentially it's more achievable Mm -hmm. right now, but it's not. Nothing is going to be achievable until 2020. I, I, I don't think that, I, I think that as, as long as Trump is in the White House, nothing of this scale is achievable. So it does, I think the path forward right now is to demonstrate to voters that you truly understand the magnitude of this crisis, that you're willing to support societal change to get there, excite people, make them hopeful for the future, instead of saying, you know, like, well, we're going to support this lukewarm thing that's not going to do anything, um, and then people are just drawn back into apathy, mm-hmm. you know, um, yeah. and, then once, and then once we have, and once we have people in power who are willing to do this, then we talk about, like, how we're going to craft this legislation to get the votes to pass it. I wish, you know, for my potential future children's sake that we had something aggressive that we could pass right now because I've been covering climate change for five years and you know I I know that the, the stakes are really high and they're a lot higher than Diane Feinstein makes it out to be yeah. when she's talking to these kids um, yeah. and, and you know I, I wish that they could pass me now but I, I don't personally like I don't think that what they would pass now would do anything so even like, if, I really even if you compromise 
even if you compromise to get those Republican votes, what you end up with is not enough to uh, to meet the moment, essentially. Um, I, I should also because right, this is a glo- this is a global problem, right? Yeah. So even the hugest thing we do yeah. is still a fight. Yeah, you know? yeah. Even if we do everything in this country, we still have to deal with the rest of the world. Although I should say the Green New Deal does talk about working with, um, you know, other countries to sort of spread the, uh, as Nancy Pelosi sort of smeared it, the green dream uh, across the globe. Uh, which brings me to this uh, other point here. We've got just a minute or two left, Emily. Uh, she has uh, Pelosi has taken. Uh, some flack for her less than full-throated support for the Green New Deal. As I said, she somewhat dismissively called it the Green Dream. But you argue um, in another article at The New Republic this week that um, Pelosi's take on climate action may have been somewhat misinterpreted, uh, at least as far as what you read into her recent interview with Rolling Stone. Yeah, I think that... I don't think that Nancy Pelosi... uh, fully supports the Green New Deal or gets the Green New Deal. So I, I feel mm-hmm. that she, from her comments, that, you know, she is dismissive of it. However, I do think that, as Dave Roberts said in one of his pieces, mm-hmm. uh, who you talked to last week, mm-hmm. um, when he when she does this and engages with AOC in this way, it builds more tension and more attention towards the Green New Deal. Mm-hmm. And the public is starting to pay attention. Dave Roberts thinks that that's intentional. Um, I'm not sure about that. But <laughs> what I what I paid attention to most in her Rolling Stone interview was how often she said, "This needs public support for it to go through." You know, she mm-hmm. basically kept saying, "I can't do this on my own." She said, "If I were," she said, "I used to be an activist. Mm-hmm. I was carrying single payer signs before you all were born." And if I were still an activist, I'd probably be sitting outside of my own office with these signs right now. But I'm not. I'm a leader in Congress. And my job is to get things through that are passable. And in order for this to be passable, we need more public support for it. She's basically doing what um, FDR may or may not have said. <laughs> right. Um, you know, I, I like... I, I like it. I want to do it. Now make me do it. Right, exactly, which Obama used to uh, cite all the time, basically saying, force me to do it. Uh, and, and Pelosi did tell Rolling Stone, I understand what uh, that to be an advocate, you are persistent, dissatisfied, and relentless. I've been there. I understand it. You have that responsibility as an advocate. She did seem to be saying, force me to do it, uh, essentially. Um, but... You know, I'm also, you know, the fact is that the Green New Deal, the Green Dream is wildly popular, at least right now, among the public. So the problem doesn't seem to be the public. It seems to be the elected officials. And I'm not sure how much uh, noise and protesting and support is actually going to change some of those uh, folks. Emily, I've got... I I disagree. You disagree? Well, I disagree. I was just going to add that I think that... I think that it's about priority. A lot of people support things, but a lot of people don't prioritize them. We've Mm. had most people in this country believe climate change is real for years and years and years now, um, but they don't prioritize it. And so, yeah, 80% of people might support the Green New Deal, but do 80% of people prioritize it? Are they going to vote on it? No. And that's what what protesting and mobilization will do. Mm. 
Uh, lastly, uh, here, uh, many Democrats um, seem, and I'm talking about voters at this point, uh, sort of seem dead set on eating their own. And I, I hope uh, that activists continue to push this, obviously, as the very real emergency that I believe that it is. Um, and um, and and that they should push it, as we discussed, you know, Inslee, uh, making this a defining issue for Democrats. I was very happy to see Feinstein, by the way, challenged by a more progressive Democrat in her 2018 election. I'm fine with that. Uh, my concern, or it's not even because it's a question, Emily, does, does action on climate risk becoming another issue like the ones that we saw divide the party in 2016? Because I'm not sure that we, uh, meaning the country and the world, not the party, but that we can survive another such divide in 2020. I'm wondering if Democrats are capable of, you know, pushing forcefully and unapologetically without sort of turning on each other with the, you know, burn it all down, destroy your enemies, sort of toxic tactics that they seem to have adopted from, you know, the Karl Rove, George W. Bush years, uh, which is now metastasized to both Republicans and Democrats alike. Do Democrats have the ability to make this the fight that it needs to be without eating themselves alive? Yeah, I mean, I'm not worried about the Democratic Party's survival. I'm worried about the planet's survival mm -hmm. for future generations. Um, I don't think it's as big of a deal uh, if the, the party can survive. Um, and honestly, this debate is that's happening right now, uh, this, you characterize it as eating their own. I characterize it as the most productive debate on climate policy I've seen in five years of doing this. It is really the first time I've seen constructive arguments over it. That It's the first time I've covered a policy climate debate that isn't stupid, to be honest. <laughs> um, and, it's, and it's the first time that I feel like people are starting to understand the stakes here. And so if, the, if it seems like the Democrats are eating each other alive over this, the Democrats are the only ones engaging uh, on, on the biggest issue of our time. And I think that that's you know, it's too late. It's a, it's a little too late, but, you know, um, well, I guess it's not too, too late. Do you know what I'm saying? I, no, so I, I do. I'm just not concerned about it. Good. Well, I, I do. But, I, of course, I'm not the one who wrote the article headlined, Diane Feinstein is a bigger climate threat than Donald okay. Trump. So <laughs> I didn't write that headline. I know. I know you didn't. <laughs> I know. I won't I won't hold it against you too much. Uh, and I, I agree. I did write everything else in the piece. <laughs> I, I, no, and I agree. And, by the way, I, I don't think, or at least I hope, that Democrats don't eat themselves alive over this, even while they push it in a way they have never pushed it before. Uh, I I just uh, I just hope it doesn't uh, get to that point. But we'll see. Uh, and we'll uh, call you back to talk about it when it happens. Emily, Emily Atkin, you can find her work at newrepublic.com and you should follow her on the Twitters where she is. Oh, it's hard to spell. Uh, <laughs> M or we that's E-M-O-R-We, W-E-E. Uh, thank you, Emory. Glad you uh, really appreciate you joining us today on the broadcast again. Thank you for having me. It was fun. You bet. 
So uh, I want to come back to uh, take a quick break here. We'll come back with uh, some thoughts. We've got some actually breaking news uh, fall, uh, falling out from uh, Michael Cohen's testimony. So we'll drag you back there. Uh, but as you were, uh, I know, chomping at the bit to I, have you know, a point I had, here. I just had this yeah. one thought that I want to add in here that I think that this public protest, this public pressure campaign that the Sunrise Movement is conducting is actually working because Senator Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, mm-hmm. the Republican Senate Majority Leader, had originally said he wanted to have a vote on the Green New Deal immediately in the Senate but after protests at his office, he has now pushed off that vote until August. Yeah, I know. When I heard him say he wanted to do that, I was like, are you sure, Mitch? Yeah, are I, you sure you want to have a vote on that? So Exactly. So we will find uh, how split the caucus is. Um, well, I was going to say soon enough, but maybe not until August. And that's it for today's edition of the Best of the Bradcast. Thanks to our guests today, Emily Atkin of The New Republic and Professor Stan Brand of Penn State University. And to you for spending a part of your day with us. It is our honor and privilege. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other, download them anytime for free at bradblog.com. You can find, follow, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. Drop us email if you like and tell us what you think at bradcast at bradblog.com. And as ever, our thanks to those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. We'll be back soon. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Bradcast producer Desi Doyen. Good luck, world.